Good morning, church. Today we're going to talk about something that I'm guessing most of us have probably never heard a sermon on before, uh, no matter how long we've been in church. And the reason that a lot of us haven't heard a sermon about this topic is because it's a difficult and often uncomfortable topic to talk about. And that topic is church discipline. We're continuing our series on the church talking about church discipline. And you might be thinking, really? Like, there are so many more important topics related to the church that we could be discussing instead. And if that's you, I want to start our time together today by showing why this is an important topic for us to discuss in this series. Now, I realize the word discipline often has negative connotations in our world. But if you think about discipline in life in general, discipline is about training. You know, if your child sits down at the piano every day to practice their scales and rehearse their songs for two hours every day, you'd say they're very disciplined. Or if someone goes running every day and watches their diet so that they can lose weight, we say that person is very disciplined. Discipline is part of a training process. It's intentional steps we take to learn a skill or reach a goal. And it involves sacrifice now for a greater reward later. And there are positive and negative sides of it. And in the church, discipline is the process of training one another to become more like Jesus. So if you've been around the bridge for any amount of time, you might be thinking, that sounds a lot like discipleship. And you're right. Have you ever realized how similar those words are, discipline and disciple? They come from the same root word. Discipline is part of the discipleship process. And discipleship is central to what Jesus calls us to do as a church, which means it's important for us to talk about discipline if it's part of that discipleship process. It also means that when church discipline is done properly and holistically, most of our interactions with it should hopefully be positive interactions, right? Things like reading our Bible together and praying together, they're part of this positive church discipline. Loving and caring for one another is part of positive church discipline. And we don't typically think of these things as church discipline, but in a holistic sense, they're part of the discipline or discipleship process of us training to become more like Jesus. And in our sermons here at the bridge, we talk a lot about this positive side of discipline. But the reality is, because we're sinful people living in a broken world, there are going to be times where the positive side of discipline is not enough to help us in our growth. The Bible tells us that sin is a reality in each of our lives. Each of us have a heart attitude that seeks to put ourselves at the center of the universe rather than God. And the Bible also tells us this heart attitude of sin is spiritually deadly. So if we want to become more like Jesus, to grow as disciples, we need a process for not only encouraging this positive engagement with Jesus, but also for proactively fighting against sin when it arises in ourselves and our community. We need a holistic approach to discipline if we're going to be the church that God calls us to be. And that process is what Jesus gives us in today's passage. And this is the negative or corrective side of church discipline. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. And we'll see what Jesus has to say to us in this passage about corrective church discipline. And we'll see that Jesus 
calls for us to confront sin in one another and seek reconciliation. Jesus calls for us to confront sin in one another and seek reconciliation. We've got just two points today, the first steps and escalation. But before we look at the passage, let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, even the parts of it that are hard, because they show us what it means to, to follow you and to trust you and to be more like you. God, I pray that you would guide us today as we look at your word. Help us to know you more because of this time. And in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start by looking at the first steps. Jesus starts today's passage in verse 15 of Matthew 18 with a hypothetical scenario. If your brother sins against you. Which right, right away puts an important limit on the application of this teaching. It's something we do with our brothers and sisters. It's, it's for fellow Christians. In looking at church discipline, it's exactly that. Church discipline. Jesus is not calling us here to be society's morality police, to point it out every time we see people around us doing something wrong. He's calling for us to hold one another in the church accountable to live godly lives. And also notice, these instructions are for what to do if your brother sins against you. Now, what does it mean for a sin to be against you? Obviously, if something, someone does something to me that simply harms me, that's a sin against me. So if someone robs me, clearly that's a sin against me. And according to what Jesus is saying here, I should confront them about that. But what if something is clearly a sin, but it's not clearly or directly impacting me? So for example, if I'm visiting the house of someone from the church and while I'm there, I see evidence that they're using illegal drugs. Clearly a sin, but is it a sin against me? On one level, it doesn't seem so, right? Like they're doing it when I'm not around. It's not necessarily something they're treating me differently because of it. But on another level, yeah, it is a sin against me. Because we've talked throughout this series about the fact that the church is a body. If he and I are part of the same body and his actions are sinful, they're going to impact the body that I am part of. Just like a toe infection impacts my whole physical body, his sinful drug use impacts the whole church body. And therefore, it is a sin against me because I'm part of that body. So what happens to one part of the body affects the rest of the body. So even this sin is a sin against me. And so according to what Jesus is saying here, if I make this discovery, it's still my responsibility to confront him about his sin. And to do this, Jesus says in verse 15, the first step of biblical confrontation is to go to the person myself. Now there are two parts of this first step that we're gonna look at one at a time. First, we're called to go to the offending brother or sister and tell them their fault. So first, go to them and tell them their fault. Notice this is a command. If we want to be obedient to Jesus, this is not optional for us. He commands us to do it. And notice also this command to go is given to the person who was hurt by the sin. You know, typically if someone does something wrong that hurts us, we want them to take the initiative in pursuing reconciliation. We want them to come to us and apologize. But Jesus says, if we're his followers, that's not how he wants us to operate. We, as the ones who are aware of the sin, have a responsibility to our brother or sister to go to them and tell them what they've done wrong so they can grow and repent. 
And I realized we have people in our church from all sorts of different cultures, and each of us is going to struggle in different ways with obeying this command because of our cultural backgrounds. I was once in a pastor training with a group of guys of all pastors from around Asia and Australia. And the guy leading the training gave this hypothetical scenario to the room full of pastors. He says, hypothetically, you become aware that one of your elders is doing something that's clearly simple. You have clear evidence that it's happening and it's grounds for him to be removed as an elder. Would you go talk to him about it? And half the guys in the room said, yes, absolutely. I would go talk to him right away. And the other half of the room said, maybe I would talk to him. How old is he? Now, if you know anything about the way different cultures relate to conflict, you won't be surprised to hear all the guys who said, yes, I would definitely go talk to him, were white. And all the guys who said, how old is he, were Asian. Our cultural background impacts how we, we naturally are wired to approach confronting sin. For me as a Westerner, my difficulty is I'm passionate about truth and self-expression. Which means, in these conversations, I can have a tendency to go in guns blazing and say exactly what's on my mind, exactly what they did wrong, and just not be aware of how I'm coming across to the other person. I share the truth directly, but I can do it in a way that tears the other person down, not in a way that seeks reconciliation. And especially if I'm confronting someone from an Asian background, this can come across as really confrontational and insensitive. In my quest for truth, I can end up sacrificing love. And I think for many of us from more Western backgrounds, that's probably the bigger temptation that we will face in obeying this. For those of us from a more Asian background, our primary struggle with this is probably going to be the opposite, right? The Chinese ideal inspired by Confucius is to have a stable society and society becomes stable. How? by people being at peace with themselves and one another. So for most Chinese people and many other Asians, the idea of directly confronting someone about their sin goes against everything your culture has taught you is good and important since the day you were born, right? Which means stereotypically, stereotypically, I know there are many exceptions, but stereotypically when Asians need to confront someone, they can tend to be so focused on maintaining stability, not costing the other person face, that they approach the topic really indirectly. They talk all around the topic without ever talking about the topic. And I realize that comes from a place of respect for the other person, a desire to honor them. But the danger is we can be so focused on respecting them and keeping things stable that we never actually address the issue in obedience to what Jesus tells us to do here. The danger is that in our quest for love, we sacrifice truth. And neither of these approaches, sacrificing love in pursuit of truth or sacrificing truth in pursuit of love, is actually being obedient to what Jesus commands us to do in this passage. He calls us to go to the person, to speak the truth, but with the goal of repentance and reconciliation, to do it in love. Now, the second big thing Jesus says about how to go to the other person is to do it alone. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He says, don't drag in other people unnecessarily. Don't gossip about the other person to a third party. 
Don't try to build up a support team who will have your back if the other person gets upset at you. Don't tell someone else about it and expect them to have the conversation with this person for you. Jesus says go directly to the person by yourself and tell them what they did wrong. Which is terrifying, right? But Jesus says this is the most loving way to confront sin because it avoids dragging the other person's name through the mud unnecessarily or sharing what they did more widely than is necessary. And this first step of confrontation, it's scary. It can be hard. But Jesus says it is the proper and loving thing to do when someone sins against us. But that doesn't change the fact that pretty much all of our hearts naturally resist doing this. We generally hate confrontation. We're especially scared of going into that confrontation alone because of the bad things that can happen to us if we do that. And we all breathe this cultural air that just makes us want to be accepting, not judgmental. And we fear coming across as judgmental if we go in and have these conversations. So if we want to obey Jesus' teaching here and, and be faithful to his commandments, where do we find the motivation to do it? I mean, the solution is not just try harder and do better. Our own strength is too weak to transform our hearts. We need our hearts to be transformed in order to approach these conversations properly. We need something bigger, something more powerful, something that can transform us and our heart desires from the inside out if we're going to obey Jesus on this. So where do we find this? And the answer is the cross. See, we are afraid of confrontation because it's easier to brush off sin as no big deal than it is to confront it. But at the cross, Jesus didn't brush off our sin as no big deal. He acknowledged it was as bad as could be, so bad that it deserved death. But he died that death in our place. We're afraid of confronting others about their sin because there may be negative consequences for us if we do it. At the cross, Jesus didn't just risk negative consequences for dealing with our sin. He went in knowing that it would lead to the ultimate negative consequence, his death. We're afraid of confronting others because we fear rejection and exclusion by them if we confront their sin. And at the cross, Jesus didn't just risk rejection. He went in knowing he'd be rejected by both humanity and God. And he endured it so that you and I can be accepted by God forever. Everything we fear in the process of confrontation, Jesus endured in its most extreme form on the cross. And he endured it so you and I can be reconciled to God. It's only when we see the beauty of what he's done for us that we're going to respond properly to what he calls us to do in today's passage. So yes, Jesus calls us to confront sin in one another. But the key to doing that is not just to try harder. It's to meditate on the cross and the great lengths that Jesus went to so we can be reconciled to God. That's what's going to transform our hearts so that we can obey him properly in this command. And once we do that, how do we have these discussions? How do we go into this confrontation? Well, let me share my top five tips. That's five tips for confronting sin to help you do this well when you do it. First, before confronting the other person, examine yourself to see whether you do the same thing that you're confronting them about. If you're doing the same thing you're about to confront them for, don't confront them. Deal with your own sin first, and then you'll be in a place where you can confront their sin without being a hypocrite. Second, make sure this is actually a sin issue. There are a lot of things other people do that annoy us, but that aren't actually sinful. 
Don't confront about things that merely annoy you. The instructions that Jesus gives here are for dealing with things that are clearly a violation of God's commands. The goal of this conversation is the other person's growth in Christ, not you being freed from a pet peeve. Third, pray before you go. Did you notice the last few verses of today's passage are all about prayer? There's a reason for that. All discussions concerning corrective church discipline need to be bathed in prayer or else we will handle them poorly. So pray before you go. Fourth, go in person if possible. And if it's not possible to go in person, call on the phone. Never, 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 ever, ever have these conversations over email or text message or social media, right? This conversation, it's going to be hard enough as it is. Adding the extra barriers of not being able to hear tone of voice, not being able to see facial expressions just makes it immensely harder. And so go in person or call on the phone so that there can be nonverbal cues and you can hear how people are responding. Um, I realize that's scarier because they can respond harshly in the moment, but it's going to make it a far better conversation. And then fifth, be aware of your emotions. In situations where someone sins against you, it's normal for you to have feelings of hurt and betrayal and anger and sadness and more. Be aware which of these emotions are inside you and how they might impact you during the discussion. Because if you're not aware of them or you deny that they're there, they're still going to spill out in the conversation and everyone else is going to know it or the other person's going to know it. You're going to be the only one who doesn't and it will wreck the conversation. So be aware of your emotions. You can account for them in the conversation. So those are my top five tips for handling these conversations well. Check your own heart. Make sure it's a sin issue. Pray before you go. Go in person or make a phone call and be aware of your emotions. And this is the first step of corrective discipline. Go to the sinner, tell them their sin. And Jesus says at the end of verse 15, if they listen to you, you have gained your brother. Obviously, this is the ideal. This is what we're hoping for in these conversations, repentance and reconciliation. But what about when that doesn't happen? Well, then it's time to escalate. So let's look at point two, escalation. Jesus says if they don't listen, we're to escalate the conversation. The first step in verse 16, the first step of escalation is to get two or three witnesses to come back with you and have that conversation again. Hopefully they listen. If they don't, then in verse 17, he says, tell it to the church. And if they still won't listen to the church, later on in verse 17, he says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, which basically means remove them from the church. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. So let's talk about a few things here. First, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Would a church ever really kick someone out? I mean, isn't the church supposed to be a place of love where everyone is welcome? Well, yes, the church is a place of love and everyone is welcome to come find grace here regardless of their background. But Jesus is clear here that when someone is claiming to be a Christian while living in continual unrepentant sin, that person is serving as a barrier to the church being what it's supposed to be and that person should be removed. See, following this process, it's not about our preferences and what we think is best. It's about being faithful to Jesus and what he calls us to be and do as a church. 
Okay, but doesn't doing this just reinforce the idea that Christians are self-righteous and judgmental? You know what? Some people are going to choose to see it that way. But in order to see it that way, you have to ignore some key realities of how the world works. See, every organization has standards of how they expect people to behave, and they remove people who don't behave that way. Think about it. In the world's eyes, what type of group would probably be seen as the most welcoming and accepting type of group there is in the world right now? My guess is any group promoting LGBTQ rights, okay? So just hypothetically, suppose you were part of a group that fights for LGBTQ rights, and then one day you come to the conviction that this lifestyle is wrong. And you start talking to people and telling them marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman. And you start posting these things on social media, saying marriage is for a man and a woman. If you start doing this, how long will this supposedly ultra-accepting group let you remain as one of its members? Not very long. Why? Because they have a standard of living they expect their members to live up to, and you're not living up to it. And no one would bat an eye at them kicking you out. No one would raise a fuss and say they're judgmental for it because it makes perfect sense for them to kick you out if you're not living in line with their community standards and expectations. So here's the big question. Why do we understand this concept when it comes to an LGBTQ group kicking someone out for not living in line with their community standards, but we call the church judgmental for doing the exact same thing, especially when our command to do it comes directly from Jesus. So no, when it's done properly, removing someone from the church after following this process shouldn't reinforce the idea that Christians are self-righteous and judgmental. But certain people will choose to see it that way, and we can't stop them from seeing it that way. We can handle the situation as, as gently and lovingly as possible, but there will still be people who choose to twist it and see it in the way that they choose to see it. Okay, but, but isn't kicking someone out of the church really harsh? Well, on one level, yes, and on one level, no. On one level, yes, it is harsh, and that's actually exactly the point. When you have cancer spreading throughout your leg, you cut the leg off. It's a drastic and harsh decision, but it's something that saves the rest of your body by, from being killed by that cancer. And Jesus is saying here, if there's someone who's living in outward, serious, and unrepentant sin while claiming to be a Christian, that's spiritual cancer in the church. And for the sake of the rest of the church, we need to remove that person so that their sinful heart attitude doesn't spread throughout the rest of the church and destroy us from the inside. On the other hand, no, it's actually not that harsh. Because when you've reached the point where you've gone through this whole process and, and the person gets removed from the church, it should only be after a prolonged period of time where they're living a clear, sinful lifestyle and being continually unrepentant. Excommunication, or removing them from the church, is simply saying, we're going to treat you based on the evidence of your actions. You, for a long period of time, have been living like you're not a Christian, so we're going to treat you like you're not a Christian. And in that sense, it's actually not that harsh. It's merely treating them in line with the way they've been acting all along. Okay, one other big question you might be wondering about right now. I'm a sinner. I sin all the time. Is this going to happen to me? Am I going to get removed from the church? Well, obviously, the point of the gospel is that we're all sinners. 
The reason Jesus had to die for us is because none of us can be perfect on our own. So we at the church, we expect you to sin. We're not shocked that you're a sinner. Hopefully we won't be shocked when you do sinful things because you're a sinner. And on a normal basis, most sin will hopefully not make it past the initial stage of this process, the one-on-one conversation. Hopefully, once you become aware of your sin, you repent of it and turn from it right away. The types of sins that lead to someone being removed from the church typically fit three criteria. First, it's outward, right? We all have simple heart attitudes, but it's hard to see or confront those unless they show themselves externally in actions. And it's generally when these attitudes that are sinful show themselves in actions that are sinful that that the rest of the church can become aware of them and start to address them. So generally, it's, it's outward. Second, they're serious. Obviously, in one sense, all sin is serious. So serious that it required the death of Jesus to save us from it. But in a very real sense, some sin is more serious than others. Like, I hope all of us would agree that murder is far more serious than stealing a pencil, right? Would you agree with that? So, so hypothetically, if, if we had someone in the church who every Sunday, they went to the offering table in the back, they took a pen from that table, stuck it in their bag, and brought it home with them, that's probably simple, right? It's theft. And we might have a conversation with them if we noticed it, just saying, what's going on here? But I can't imagine a scenario where we would escalate that and bring it to the church because it's such a small thing, right? On the other hand, if a guy from the church leaves his wife and kids, runs off with another woman, that's far more serious. And if he insists in living in this sinful way and not repenting, that's something that would be escalated through the process and lead to his removal from the church. So how do we draw this line between what is and isn't serious enough to escalate? Honestly, it's not an exact science. We trust God to guide us on a case-by-case basis. I will say a couple key things we'll look for in that process. One, is this sin damaging relationships in the church? And two, is this sin damaging our witness in the community? The more those two things come into play, damaging relationships in the church and damaging our witness in the community, the more serious we're likely to treat the sin. So sin that gets escalated is generally outward, it's serious, and then third, it is unrepentant, right? Again, the Bible is clear. All of us are sinners. All of us will sin, sometimes in big ways. Actually, the set of instructions in today's passage for what to do in confronting sin only comes into play once the sin has already happened. And all throughout, this process stops the moment the person repents of their sin. The only reason this process gets escalated in the first place is because the person refuses to repent and turn from their sin back to Jesus. So sin that gets escalated, it's outward, it's serious, and it's unrepentant. So will this happen to you? I hope not. I hope when people come to you and tell you about your sin, that your immediate first response is to repent and turn from it. But if you persist in outward, serious, unrepentant sin, it could happen to you, just like it could happen to me if I persist in this type of sin. Okay, so now that we've answered those questions, let's talk a little more about what this looks like in practice. And I want you to notice a few things. First, 
This is a process. We as a church, when someone is in this situation, are called to give them chance after chance after chance to see their sin and repent of it. And all throughout the process, the goal is for them to see their sin, to turn from it, and to be reconciled to God and the person or people that were hurt by their sin. It may seem ironic, but even that last step of letting them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, it's done with that goal of repentance and reconciliation. The goal is if you reach the point where you have to remove them from the church, they're going to realize how much their sin is costing them by cutting them off from the church community. And that's going to lead to them turning from their sin and coming back to Jesus and his people. So first, it's a process. And we're called to give them chance after chance after chance of repenting and being reconciled. Second, notice that these instructions assume a high level of commitment to the church. Right? It assumes there's there's a group that's, that's inside the church, that's a committed core, and it assumes that someone can be removed from that church. And it assumes that being removed is a painful process. See, in our world, many people's connection to the church is often loose. It's more a connection of convenience. If someone tries to go through this process of confronting their sin, it all of a sudden becomes quite inconvenient to be at that church, So they leave and find another church that's more convenient to be a part of. But Jesus here, he's assuming that getting removed from the church is going to hurt. That somehow this going through this process will be painful enough that it will lead us to rethink our sin and turn from it. So I want to ask you, do you have that type of close connection with your church community? If not, one practical step is we have a membership class happening this afternoon, and I encourage you to join for that class and learn about what membership means here at The Bridge. The third thing I want us to look at here is what does it mean to treat someone as a Gentile or a tax collector? You know, I've been part of churches in the past where they would say what this means is this person is no longer allowed inside the church building, and if you see them around town, stay away from them, shun them. And I don't think that's quite what Jesus is going for here. I think instead he's saying we are to treat this person as if they're a non-Christian. Yes, there could be extreme circumstances where someone's presence in the church service could threaten the safety of other people there. And in that case, we would tell them don't come to our church service. But unless it's one of those extreme circumstances, We want this person at the church service so they can hear the gospel and be reminded of their need for repentance. But their experience at the church service will be different than it was before. How? Well, they're banned from taking communion with the rest of the church. That's where the term excommunication comes from. Ex, outside of, communion, communication. Communion is for Christians, and this person has been living for a prolonged time like they're not a Christian, and we don't want to give them a false sense of security about the state of their salvation. So we would say, no, you, if you've reached this point of being removed, cannot take communion. Also, in our interactions with them, we're going to treat them as if they're not a Christian. We're not going to treat them as a Christian brother or sister. We're going to be regularly calling them to repent of their sin, turn back to God, trust in him, become a Christian. And in doing this, we're not necessarily saying straight up, you are not a Christian. We're simply saying we don't have enough positive evidence at this time 
to believe you when you tell us that you are, or to affirm you in your claim to be a Christian. And so we want you to turn to trust in Jesus and to reach a point where we again feel comfortable affirming your claim to be a Christian. And Jesus tells us in this passage, when we reach the point where we have to give these consequences as a church, or when, when someone repents and we forgive them and restore them, that God is giving these consequences or restoring them as well. That's what he means in verse 18 when he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The judgments the church makes about church discipline reflect the judgments that God makes about this person as well. This isn't because we hold God hostage by our decision somehow. No, it's because God gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us so that if we're following his lead, we're only going to make the decision that's in line with what God has already decided about this person. And so when we restore someone, God restores them. When we remove someone, God removes them as well. And I realize, like I said, this is tough. Church discipline, especially the the corrective side of church discipline, confronting sin, it's not easy. But if we want to be the church that Jesus calls us to be and make disciples the way that Jesus calls us to, it's essential for us to do. And I realize the guidelines in today's passage, they fight against all of our cultural instincts. In order to pursue obedience, we need our hearts soaked with the truth of the gospel and filled with love for our neighbor. And I'm not going to pretend this is easy even then. This process, it can be painful. But when it's followed properly, it's a great tool given to us by God for restoring sinners to a proper walk with him and maintaining the purity of the church. And I realize it's, it's probably going to be a process to get to a place where we as a church family do this really well. It's probably not going to happen overnight. But that's why God brought us together as a family, so we can help and encourage one another as we seek to grow in our obedience to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word for telling us and showing us what you expect of us as we follow you. Thank you that you love us and that you're good to us. I pray that you would teach us to obey you when it comes to corrective church discipline. I pray that you would transform our hearts so that we desire more to obey you than to do what's comfortable for us. I pray that you would fill us with love for one another and that we would seek one another's good and your honor and glory through the way that we interact with one another and confront sin in our church. Give us wisdom in doing this. Soak us in love for one another as we do this. In Jesus' name, amen.